Psalms 145. This is such a powerful chapter of praise. It's a very powerful chapter of praise. Uh, at the top of, uh, of my chapter, just beneath, uh, just beneath the number of the psalm, I don't know if everybody's Bible says it the same way, but mine says God's unsearchable greatness. As I was praying tonight, I got kind of odd in my response to the Lord, and I was praying, and I said, Lord, I want to search out your unsearchable greatness. Now, that may sound foolish to you. What's that mean, Pastor? The weeping prophet Jeremiah said that the Lord would show us hidden things. One, one translation says... Um, fenced in things, things that you've never seen before. Yet then the New Testament tells us that eyes have not seen and ears have not heard the things that God has prepared for them that love him. But the Spirit hath revealed it unto us. Do you know what the Holy Ghost does for us? It causes us to search out the unsearchable things. It gives us the ability to see things and I'm not saying this for exclusivity tonight, but I want to tell you, when you're full of the Holy Ghost, the world looks different to you than it does to people that don't have the Holy Ghost. We have a hope that they don't have. We know things about God that this whole world will never know about Him. I'm glad that I don't just know about Him tonight. I'm glad that I know Him. What do you mean, Pastor? I mean, when you've been filled with the Holy Ghost, you are literally filled with the essence and the presence of God. You are not filled with the third person of the Trinity. You are filled with the essence of God. You are filled with His greatness, with His power, with His authority. And I am searching His unsearchable greatness. Hallelujah. I know some folks don't like it when we talk like that. But you know there's something to, to be said about spoiled rotten king's kids. I want to know things about him I've never known before. I've served God all my life. And the more I find out about him, the more I realize, the less I know. Unsearchable greatness. Psalms 145 and verse 1, we'll just read through here together. I will extol thee, my God, O King, and I will bless thy name forever and ever. Every day. How often? Every day will I bless thee. And I will praise thy name forever and ever. What about the days you wake up and don't feel like it? What about the days you wake up and you're mad at your wife or your husband? What about the day you wake up and your boss talks ugly to you? Every day I will bless thee. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And here it comes. And his greatness is unsearchable. You cannot fathom how great he is. One generation shall praise thy works to another. And shall declare thy mighty acts. If our young people aren't worshipers, guess whose fault it is? Now that, that ain't on me, that's in the book. If everybody in this church worshipped the way you worshipped, what kind of church would this be? If your kids have the kind of prayer life that you have, what kind of prayer life will they have? Woo! Let's go to Miracle Signs and Wonders and talk about something good. How about it? I will speak of the glorious honor of thy majesty and of thy wondrous works. I want you to think about the nature of this. We're, we're kind of breaking this down as we go along here. How is it that a, that a generation arose in the wilderness which knew not the Lord nor the wonderful works, the wondrous works which he had performed. You've heard me preach this many times through the years. I want this to soak into you. We have an obligation to the next generation. 
the generation that arose and did not know God was a generation that grew up picking manna and quail out of their teeth. How long did they have to live their lives every morning waking up and not having to worry about where their help was coming from? They didn't have to worry about shade in the afternoon. They didn't have to worry about heat in the evening. When their father woke up in the morning and turned on the coffee pot and opened up the door of the tent, there was manna laying there. And every Friday there was two times as much and it wouldn't spoil. Where'd that come from? It came from the God of heaven and earth. It came from the God that brought you out with a mighty hand out of Egypt. But your children don't even know who he is. How is it that we get to the place where we feel like God owes us so much? That we don't have to say thank you for what he's done. We just hand that man at our kids and say, here, the Lord provided for us. Don't worry about it. We just sit down at the table and don't worry about praying over our food. We don't worry about opening up our mouth and saying, Lord, thank you for providing for us today. Thank you for the table we're sitting at right now. Thank you, Lord, for what we're about to partake of in our body. I don't ever want my children to forget, and I always want them to know every good and perfect gift that we have comes from the Lord. Oh, it does not. It comes from the job that I work. I'm telling you, if it wasn't for Him, you wouldn't have the breath in your lungs and the strength in your body to work that job. I promise you, every good and perfect gift comes from the Lord. If you believe it, say amen. Verse 7. They shall abundantly utter. Somebody say speak. Often and with greatness. Speak it. Abundant with abundance, speak the memory of thy great goodness. Speak abundantly of the memory. That means the things that he has done. I love looking at John when the when he's writing in Revelation about the accuser of the brethren being taken down for the last time. Because as the accuser of the brethren is being taken down. He said, I also saw a multitude of people. It was a great number of people, and they were the overcomers. And this is how they overcame him, the accuser. Somebody tell me how it happened. By the blood of the Lamb and by? Because they uttered abundantly the memory of what the Lord had done. They never stopped talking about the goodness of the Lord and the things that he had done. He said, and you shall... Sing of his righteousness. Is there anybody in here today that you're thankful your singing career doesn't go any further than the shower? I'm pretty grateful for that myself for some folk. Look, it's not everybody's calling to be in the choir and sing a solo. But it's everybody's calling to sing of his righteousness. I don't care if you can't carry a tune in a bucket every day of your life. You ought to say something about the goodness of the Lord. Do you believe that? Amen. Why, why, Pastor? Why, 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 why is that necessary? I'll tell you why. Because the Lord is gracious. He is full of compassion. Woo, boy, am I forever thankful that he is slow to anger. <laughs> I really, honestly, I could spend all night right here and just... Hand the microphone around and say, tell us how he's shown compassion to you. And some of you would hold the microphone for the rest of the night and still not get done. Because he's that good, isn't he? Somebody say amen. amen. And the good thing about the Lord is he is no respective persons. Verse 9 said, the Lord is good too. Aren't you glad you can't earn it? You can't deserve it? He's good to all of us. And his tender mercies are over all his works. All thy works shall praise thee, O Lord. And thy saints, somebody say, that's me. Shall bless thee. They shall speak of the glory. There it is again, vocalizing. I can't tell you how important that is. Utter it, speak it, sing it, say it. Say, speak something about the glory of thy kingdom and what now? 
The only way they're going to know is when we quit hiding it. We're going to say something about his power. To make known to the sons of men. Well, I just keep my testimony to myself. He said, speak it and talk it to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Now, this right here is our focus verse for this week. Verse 13, thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. If there's anybody glad about it, say amen. The Lord upholdeth all that fall and raiseth up all those that be bowed down. The eyes of all wait upon thee and thou givest them their meat in due season. That's the hardest season to wait for, just so you know. Be not weary in well-doing. Come on, somebody shout it out. For in due season. That's the hardest season to wait on. In due season you shall reap if you faint not. Thou openest thine hand and satisfiest the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him. To all that call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of them that fear him. And also will hear their cry and will save them. The Lord preserveth all them that love him. But all the wicked will he destroy. My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Could we give the Lord praise for the reading of his word tonight? Come on, somebody say something about the goodness of the Lord in this room right now. I'm in no hurry right here. Somebody speak of his greatness. Somebody talk of his majesty right now. Somebody speak of his kingdom that never ends right now. Somebody say something. About his throne right now. Of your kingdom there shall be no end, great God. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Praise the living God. Let the church say amen. Praise the Lord. So Psalms 145 is titled David's Psalm of Praise. It's very interesting because it is said that this, uh, of all the Psalms, that this Psalm is David's, is like it was his favorite, like his highest expression of praise. Of all the Psalms that he wrote, in particular this one, so many uh, commentators and historians say that this one was the special one to David. The first seven verses of it uh, show David's desire to praise God for all of his acts and all of his attributes. The next 14 verses describe to God all the ways that David sees others will praise him. You will find featured among these ways are God's faithfulness and his willingness to be near and preserve those who call upon him. And as David demonstrates over and over and over and over and over, you will never know him unless you call on him. When I was a boy, we sang it all the time. Call him up. Call him up and tell him what you want. Call him up and tell him what you want. I shared the story Sunday night of the man that I was with in the taxi cab the other night. And he said, why don't I have the Holy Ghost? I said, have you ever asked for it? I want to tell you right now, James said it well, that we have not because we ask not. I feel like there's people in this world that want to say they know something about him. But unless you've called on him, you don't know him. David said, if you'll call on him... You're going to find something out about him. He is a God that his ear is inclined to the voice of those that will call upon him. Somebody say thy kingdom. Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. 
It's obvious according to the writing of David that, that during this season of praise and meditation that his meditation brought him near unto God and brought God near to him. He speaks to the Lord in such adoration. I found it very interesting, the distinction in the language, the pronoun changes from verse uh, 12 to verse 13. In verse number 12, he says to make known uh, the, the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. In verse 13, the pronoun switches and he picks right up and he says, and thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. He goes from saying men are going to see his works to saying, but thy kingdom. It's like the transition happens. This is what I'm saying to you, a generation that needs to praise him and show forth his kingdom. But Lord, thy kingdom. It's like his face changes all of a sudden and now he is looking face to face with the king of kings and the lord of lords and prostrates himself before him it's as though praise has somehow opened up the gate of heaven and he enters into the portal to speak with god face to face as a man would speak with his friend and David turns his face toward God and he says thy kingdom thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom in the rhythm and the cadence of this psalm it is quite obvious the cadence of the psalm is that the point upon which the psalmist rests his mind upon is the eternity of the divine throne of God. In other words, what are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying David tries to the best of his ability to paint a picture with a simple vocabulary how long and eternal the kingdom of God is. Now this is interesting. Because there are some that refer to the Lord, and it's right here in in this, uh, uh, in this very chapter we read, we could insert the words, thy kingdom is eternal kingdom. David said it is everlasting kingdom. But there's something so interesting about this because in the English language, this is indicative of something that's so hard for us to express. If I were to say to you tonight that the kingdom of God is eternal, there's so much truth to that. But it indicates that although it's eternal, that means it has no ending, that it's somewhere it had a beginning. Now this is so hard. I sat at the table with my kids one night and we were discussing all of this. And, and one of my girls asked, she said, how do we explain to people that God created everything there is, but that nobody created God? I want you to think about this. I, I really, I'm, I'm being honest with you right now. I want you to think about everything that we know, historically, scientifically, medically, everything that we know, everything that you and I believe. How many of you believe that when the scripture said he created in seven days, that's what he did? Come on now. I believe it. I, I, I you know, I, again, I've shared with you all before that there's some theories out there that the Lord did it all, you know, a day, a day is as a thousand years with the Lord and there was some some old doctrines that came out of Indianapolis years ago that uh, every day was a thousand years. So the Lord uh, took a thousand years on the first day and a thousand years on the, seventh, the second day. So basically the creation week was 7,000 years. And we can dispel this immediately because the scripture tells us that as he set in order on the first day, he separated the day and the night. He called the day uh, light and, and the darkness night. He separated the separation of light and darkness. So in order for God to establish this cycle in life, as he begins to create plants and he begins to create animals and he begins to create processes, that means that these animals and these plants and these trees and all that he's created had to live for 500 years in darkness and then 500 years in daylight and 500 years in darkness and 500 500 years in daylight and we all know that that's not how this thing works he established order in creation but this is what I want to tell you this is not creation is the beginning of creation it is not the beginning of God it is not the beginning of God 
There is no book in the world that contains the beginning of God. I know John the Beloved said it, that all the books in the world could not contain it. But understand this preacher when I tell you tonight, before there was any other God in this world that considered itself to be God, or that man called God, there was a God. Before there was man, there was God. Before there was sky, there was God. Before there was earth, there was God. He was God, and He was God all by himself. Why, why, why are there things, Pastor, that we don't know? I sat down with a man one day who was raised in a preacher's home. He didn't walk in the fullness of truth, but he was raised in a preacher's home. And we sat down at the table and we, we began to discuss, had, a, had a, a decent friendship. And he said basically to me, he said, do you really believe that the word of God is infallible? I said, what do you mean? Like, I couldn't believe his questions come. What do you believe that it's infallible? I said, like, do I believe it's perfect? He said, yeah. I said, uh, yeah. He said, you, you, you don't believe it has any holes? I said, no. He said, well, I do. I said, Tell me why. He said, where did Cain's wife come from? Uh, Nod? Land of Nod? Yeah. And the Bible doesn't say that God created people in Nod. I said, let me tell you something, brother. This is where you and I are going to part ways right here. I said, because this book is not about everything God did. This book is about what God did to fix what I messed up. This is a story about his mercy that began in a garden when he created a place for communion with us. And when man messed that up, listen, there's things about God that I'll never see. And there's things about God that I'll never know. His Greatness is unsearchable. I believe that if God was powerful enough to create in the Genesis, what about the angels? We don't have a record where he created the angels, but we know that Elohim was present at the creation account. We know that before creation that the Lord created angels. We don't know when he did it, but we know that he did it. Listen, we have this beautiful tool. It is the infallible word of God. A baby said to me tonight, we were, we were talking about the coming of the Lord sitting at, at the table. And Jocelyn said to me, she said, Dad, I hope there's not like Bible or something that we, we haven't found yet that we need. I said, without even thinking, I said, there's not. There are books in this Bible. Bishop and I were talking about it the other day. There's books in this Bible that as you're reading down through it, it'll talk about this such king and this, that, that king. Uh, through the Chronicles and Numbers, different books, and it'll say, and the rest of the works of this king are contained in this book. And some of those books are not in this Bible. Matter of fact, Jude quotes uh, the book of Enoch. But the book of Enoch is not in the canon of Scripture. There are all kinds of books that were found, uh, even, even with the Dead Sea Scrolls. But I want to tell you where they're not. They're not in the canon of the 66 books. Do you know why we have the 66 books? This is going to be deep. Put your floaties on. Because God wanted us to have 66 books. I believe with all of my heart that when you take that Old Testament and you line it up with that New Testament, listen, this is what I know. That when the church was being started, that the apostles preached Christ to them from the, uh, from the prophets and from the law. If it was good enough for this church to start with, it's good enough for this church to go out with. Do you believe the word's infallible? Yes, I do. 100% without fail, His word will never pass away. If you believe it, say amen. So when he spoke about the eternal essence of the kingdom of God, of His throne... It's very interesting. It's like thy reign will be for all eternities. Well, I mean, how many eternities are there? Because there's no way to describe 
how long his kingdom will reign. I love this because the messianic prophecies say that the son that's born, the child that's born, the son that's given of his government, there shall be no end. Well, do you not think there's a, that there's a time when, when uh, the lion hands the book over to the lamb and then the, the lamb hands the book back? Pastor, do you not believe that the sonship ends there? No, I don't. I don't believe his sonship ever ends. It's through the sonship that he redeemed us. And of his government that's on his shoulders, there shall be no end. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around that. But if I could just cut it down for you as simple as I know how, I want to tell you this right now. From here at the birth of your walk with God, when you were born again, until you stand before Him in heaven on judgment day, you He is the only God that you will ever lay an eyeball on. Colossians said He is the image of the invisible God. And when you stand before Him, you're going to see Him like He is. Can I say it to you like this? He was enough when I got started, and he's going to be enough when I'm over. When you say Jesus, you said it all. When you say Jesus, you said enough. That's why when I pray, I don't have to go ask his mama first, and I don't have to go to his father first. For it pleased the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell. I'm glad to tell you tonight, of his government there shall be no end. What do you mean? I mean the Lord's kingdom is without beginning. It's not just eternal, it's infinite. It's without beginning. It's without a break. There's no break in it. It's without a boundary. It has no boundaries. It has no ending. God never abdicates nor renounces his kingdom. And he certainly never has a second person that he hands it over to. Go jump in your Bible and read Daniel, the seventh chapter. It's very interesting. As the Ancient of Days is seated on the throne. And in walks this figure that looks like a lamb. And the Ancient of Days... Daniel begins to describe him. He said he has hair like wool and eyes like fire. And he, he hands this scroll over to a lamb. A lamb? What about the lamb? And so John is standing in the water, Baptist. John the Baptist standing in the water, baptizing people. And Jesus comes walking down. And John says, behold the lamb. What lamb? The lamb that Daniel saw. But in Revelation, John sees what Daniel saw. In chapter 7, he said it was the ancient of days with hair like wool and eyes like fire and feet like brass. But in Revelation, John sees it and John read Daniel. John knew Daniel, but John is looking at a different picture in Revelation. All theologians will agree for the most part, 99% of them, that Daniel and John were both looking into the heavens and that they were not literal things that they saw, but they were types and shadows of certain things to come. And John, who's read Daniel and prophesied, I know what Daniel prophesied, and see what Daniel prophesied he says this picture looks a little different to me he said because Daniel called him the ancient of days but this figure that I'm looking at that has hair like wool and eyes like fire Daniel called him the ancient of days but I know him as the son of man he said I know him I walked with him I was there when he died I was there when he got up and now I know he's here with me on Patmos Can I say to you without reservation tonight that the ancient of days put on the clothing of flesh and dwelt among us? And without controversy. 1 Timothy 3.16. Somebody ought to be able to quote it right now. And without controversy. Great is the mystery of godliness. I wish somebody had preached with me right here, right now. Who was? God was manifest in the flesh. He was justified in the spirit. He was seen of angels. He was preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. Daniel and John weren't confused. The ancient of days is the son of man. 
doesn't share his empire with anybody. Nobody can overthrow his power. Nobody can break away from his rule. Neither in this age or the age to come or the ages of ages. It's not going to happen. And he said, God, you reign. You reign as king forever. You have an everlasting kingdom. And thy dominion endureth throughout all. Somebody say all. all. Throughout all generations. Men come and men go. Like shadows on the wall. But our God reigns eternal. Anybody in here that loves history will discover that throughout history, one of the ways that we mark history is by distinguishing kings that succeed one another. Began with Henry, then Henry II, then Henry III, and ultimately Henry VIII. Henry VIII I am, I am. Henry VIII I am. We mark kings by who they succeeded. It was such and such the first and such and such the second, such and such the third. But can I tell you right now, he is a king. All by. <laughs> there will never be a second. And there will never be a third. And there will never be a fifth. But he is a king that is all by himself. Never has there been a king like our king in Revelation chapter 1 and verse number 8. It's red letters in my Bible and it's red letters in your Bible. He said, I am the first, I'm the alpha, and I am the omega. I am the beginning and I am the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the almighty. Somebody shout yes. Henry the first can say, yeah, I was Henry the first. But our king can say, I am the first. And I am the last. What does that mean? That means there was nobody before me. And there ain't going to be one after me. Because I am God all by myself. Well, pastor, what about Genesis 1.26? Did God not say, let us create man in our image? He sure did. He absolutely said it in verse 37. Makes it so very clear, Genesis 1 and, and 27. If he was talking to the second or the third person in the Trinity, it would make sense for us in 1 and 27. But let's just read it together so that it's very clear. So God made man in his... Why didn't he make man in their image? God made man in his own image and in the image of the gods. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he. So he knows the difference between him and them. That ain't my Bible, that's our Bible. It's apparent they know the difference between him and them. And it was him that created them. But the problem is we've let them create him to become them because they don't understand who he is. I find it very interesting how many people buy in to the Apostles' Creed and want to believe creed or religion. And it's amazing. When you look at the Apostles' Creed, there wasn't a single apostle that was still alive when the creed was written. It was men that surmised they believed. They knew what the apostles believed. I'm pretty sure we know what the apostles believed. Because Paul told the church at Colossae, in Colossians, the second chapter and the ninth verse. Bishop, it don't get no better than this. Colossians chapter 2 and 9, for in him. Who? Who's he talking about? How do we know? Let's go back to verse 8. How do we know who he's talking about? Let's go to verse 8. Beware lest any man spoil you through the philosophy of vain deceit. I love this. After the what? Tradition of men. After the rudiments of this world and not after. How many Christ was there? The only one. Capital C. He's the only one Messiah. Only one Messiah. Not after the Messiah. Not after Christ. For in him, nine. In him. In who? In Christ. 
dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead in what form? Bodily. Go ahead to verse 10. I love it. God, this preaches itself. What did the apostles believe? The apostles believed you are You are complete in Him, which is the head of all principality and power. It lines up perfectly with Matthew 28 and verse number 18 when Jesus said that all power in heaven and in earth is given to me. What was He saying? He was saying, I am the head of all principality and power. I've been given preeminence in all things. From creation, Adam and his generation knew his creator to be the king. And I want to declare to you tonight that the last of his race shall know the same. Are you hearing what I'm telling you right now? I said Adam knew his creator to be the king and the last of his race shall know the same. How do you know that, Pastor? Because Philippians 2 and verse 5 said, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in the fashion of man he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even to the death of the cross wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name verse 10 that at the name of Jesus even the last of Adam's race will know. Because every. Somebody say every. <laughs> well, I'm an atheist. Well, your knee's going to bow. Well, I'm an agnostic. Well, you better put on some kneecaps. <laughs> I, don't, I told you about that guy who walked past my family the other day. God isn't real. I want to say, suck, you better get you some. Some covering on them knees. And you better put a bridle in your mouth. Because one day every knee is going to bow. Come on, don't take it away from me yet. Let's put it up there. I want the whole world to see it tonight. He said that every knee is going to bow of things in where? Does that sound like Matthew 28 and 18 to you? Things where? In heaven and in earth and under the earth. And verse 11, and that the ones that want to, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every man is going to know what Adam knew. Now, I don't want to bore you with this, and I'm, I'm going to hurry. But Psalm 145 is very unique. The 13th verse is very powerful. Searching through some historical records this week, some documents, I came across something that just kind of threw me for a loop. I'm not going to take you into the deep history of it. I'm going to try to keep this as shallow as I can to keep you from snoring in Greek and dreaming in Hebrew. But I want you to stay with me right now. So there's a town in, in Syria now, but the, the, the town has kept the same name, Damascus. It was on the road to Damascus that Saul was changed into Paul. His conversion happens. It, so the, the place is, is uh, definitely in the scripture. Damascus is, is very much in the Bible. And there's a building there in Damascus to this present day. Uh, it is known as the Umayyad uh, mass, uh, Mosque. But there's something very interesting about this mosque. Now, uh, just, just being honest with you. It is one of the largest and one of the oldest mosques in the world. It is next in, in relation and power only to, uh, to Mecca 
and to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the second holiest. And this is, this is next only to that. So we would categorize it somewhere around third of importance to the holy nation of Islam in Damascus. It's a very powerful, powerful place to them. Now, don't get your gun out and shoot me because I'm not falling into Chrislam. But I want to tell you something. It's important to me too. Why? It's a holy place to me too. Why? Well, I'm glad you asked because I want to talk to you about it. So I started looking up this, this mosque. Very interesting. It is said that this on this very site, all the way back to the Iron Age, and I'm not going to take you all the way back. We're talking about before the Bronze Age, like way, 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 way back. It is believed historically that this site that this mosque is on has been a place of worship since the Iron Age. I'm talking about like, we're way before there was anything ever known as Muhammad or Islam or anything of that nature. It was a holy site. They don't know for sure who was the first to worship there. They don't know a lot about it that you, uh, other than that tradition just says, and you can find this on as simple as Wikipedia, that it goes all the way back to the Iron Age as a place of worship. This is not like a deep, dark secret, okay? We're not going to find, like, the highest order, the Masonic order here in this place. It's like, it's just a, it's a very holy site. And so, over time... It evolves and it becomes a place of worship for different sects of religion as world dominance is taken over by different people. And so it was said that at one time it was a place of uh, worship to the one, one true God of Abraham, perhaps. And then, uh, then later it became a place of worship for Jupiter, which is very interesting. This is not, as a matter of fact, it's not uncommon at all. If you get into... Uh, to Roman history, you find out that what, what they're calling St. Peter's Basilica and all this stuff that's such a holy site unto God, it's not at all. These were, these were pagan worship temples to pagan gods. And so they believed that there were worshipers to Jupiter that worshiped here at one time. And then there was, and, and I'm, again, I'm trying to keep this as shallow and quick as I can. And then there came a time, they said that the Christians, which is now post-Messiah, so now we're looking at a time where Christians began to worship in this same exact site, okay? And then somewhere around 683, perhaps, so 650 years or so after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, which is not very far considering all things now, we're, uh, we're, we're 2021. So somewhere around 680 or so, 683, 686, that the empire conquers and what we later find out as, as becomes Islam, they begin to worship at this same site. But Bishop, it's funny how history repeats itself because they were kind enough to let the Christians stay there and worship in part of the building. So literally, under one roof, there were Christians worshiping in one wing and there were Muslims worshiping in the other wing. And then the Muslims got sick of it and said, we're kicking you out, and we now dominate Syria, and we dominate this part of the world. So Christians are not allowed to worship here anymore, and they began to build. I'm telling you, if you'll just look up the old mosque in Damascus, it will blow your mind what you see. Uh, the, um, it is a phenomenal-looking building. It actually, there's a bunch of legends that go with it. It's kind of crazy. It, it is said that this site was such a holy place that later, after John the Baptist, that they had John the Baptist's head in a golden coffin in here. It's why it's such a holy place, and that's why the Muslims like to keep everybody out because they've got John the Baptist's head in it. I have no clue if it's in there or not. I don't know. I know who does know. But I'm just saying, I, I don't have a clue. But this is what we do know. And I found this so interesting because there are things in archaeology that tell us about people that have been there. They're saying, we don't know exactly who it was and what sect of Christians, as if there really should have ever been a division in the sect of Christianity. They're saying, we really don't know who it was. Now, folks, I, I wish so bad these projectors were good enough I could show you a picture of this place. It'll blow your mind if you were to see it. This place is unbelievable. But they said there's something very interesting on the east side of this building. There's a little bridge that connects. They've added on and added on and added on and added on and added on. It's a massive place. But there's one little spot on the east side. There's a beautiful, uh, a beautiful little arch that goes back to the days uh, of, of, of the Greeks. But written in Greek, Bishop... That the Muslims have ignored it now for 1,300 years. Written in Greek 
on the east side of this mosque in Damascus, Syria, on the east side, on this bridge in Greek, there is this saying right here. Now, we're going we're, we're to compare a couple of things right here. And, and I quote this right here. For 13 centuries now, this has been there. In this holiest of Mohammedan sanctuary are inscribed these words, and I quote, Thy kingdom, O Christ, is an everlasting kingdom, and thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. Now, I'd like for you to put Psalms 145 and 13 up here for me very quickly. God have mercy. Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. But I want to show you what's on the side of this mosque. Thy kingdom, O Christ. Do you see Christ in Psalm 145? No? It's thy kingdom, O God. Thy kingdom, O God, is an everlasting kingdom. We really don't know what sect of Christian that was there and worshipped at the holy site. I raised my hand. There was nobody in there. I raised my hand in my office. I said, I do. I can tell you who was there. I can tell you who worshipped there. It was somebody that got the revelation on the day of Pentecost. It was somebody that when they picked up Psalm 145 and read, they read it from a different perspective than David had ever seen. Because the root and the offspring of David... Thy kingdom, O Christ. What about the Christ? Christ is the image of the invisible God. And they recognize it was the kingdom of His sonship. It was the kingdom of His power. Who was it that worshipped there? It was somebody that knew who Jesus was. Oh my God. The name of Christ has been regularly blasphemed. The disciples of Jesus have absolutely and regularly been cursed for 1,300 years within the walls of this building when the Muslims said there will be no more Christians worshiping in here but on the outside of the building that they have cursed Him inside. There is written on the walls of that building, Thy kingdom, O Christ, is forever and everlasting. I'm telling you right now that when Islam is dead and gone and it's buried in the earth and they find out Muhammad had no power and that Allah is not who they thought he was thy kingdom let's stand they said it's in a, it, it's in a place where nobody really sees it nobody real, really pays attention to it I found it interesting in the Greek language, the language that the New Testament was written in. So at some time during the New Testament age, as all this is being written, somebody got over there with a chisel one day. And said, I'm going to be sure that no matter who comes by here, they know who he is. Thy kingdom, oh Christ, is everlasting. I want the world to know. And I want them to know it don't matter who you try to worship in here. It don't matter who tries to worship in here. It don't matter what name they call in here. They can call out to Allah all they want to. They can call out to Muhammad all they want to. They can call out to Buddha if they want to. It doesn't matter. But thou, O oh Christ, thy kingdom. Hey, I want to tell somebody tonight. I'm glad that I serve the one true living God. He has no beginning and he has no ending. But his kingdom is ever Undisturbed You know what I believe You can believe it's a coincidence if you want to I believe it's there I believe the Lord has kept it there And I'm going to tell you why I believe that Because I know how these people act And I know how they believe in that part of the world And if they had any clue how to read Greek And they had any clue what that was indicating on their walls They'd tear it down or cover it up. They'd probably take green stencils and ride something else on there. But you listen to what I'm telling you. You can shake it. You can break it. You can crack it. You can paint over it. You can do whatever. But when it's, once it's been inscribed on the walls of your heart. When Jesus said, you tear down this temple in three days, I'll raise it. They said, oh, not the building. Oh, no. Did you hear what he said? He's going to tear this building down. He said, you thought, I was, you thought I was talking about that building. Listen, he don't need a building to be powerful. 
And we found that out over the last couple of years. He's as powerful in my house. He's as powerful in my car. Yes, it's good for us to dwell together in unity. But you hear me when I tell you. I don't have to be in this house to be blessed. I don't have to be in this house. I can be driving down the road and call on that name that has an eternal kingdom. And all of a sudden he meets me there. I've called on his name in hospital rooms. And Bishop, he's met me there. I've called on his name while the lights and the sirens were flashing at scenes. And people said, how in the world are we going to do this? I said, I don't know, but I know a man who can. I've called on his name. In the midnight hour when my babies were sick in their body and the fever burned on their brow. And I watched my beautiful wife walk in there and take down that uncut hair and lay it across them babies. And she did not say in the name of Buddha. She did not say in the name of Muhammad. She did not say in the name of Allah. She said in the name of Jesus Christ, I command this fever to break right now. And you ain't going to believe what happened now. The fever broke. Something that happens, and I, I'm done preaching, but there's something that happens. Why does it matter how we're baptized? Because it matters that the name. <laughs> there's no name like the name of Jesus. And it matters that that name has been called over your life because it's the only name that has a kingdom that will never end. I'm so glad tonight. That I know who he is. I know some people think that we preach about the oneness of God just to get Pentecostal people excited. I'm going to tell you why I preach about it because I don't ever want to forget. That's not even biblical, Pastor. Like, I mean, really, it's, it's not even biblical. Oh, but it is. Deuteronomy, the sixth chapter, he said, tell your children when they get up in the morning. Tell them about it when they walk about their way. Tell them about it when they lay their head down at night. Can I tell you? There's never a bad time to talk about Jesus. Praise the living God. Hallelujah. Amen. I want us to pray together tonight. I want us to touch the heart of God. Praise the Lord. I want us to just give him thanks that we know who he is tonight. Would you do that with me right now, precious God? What a privilege it is to be your sons and daughters in the earth. What a privilege it is to walk with you, Lord. To talk with you, Lord. And to know that the God of heaven and of earth has indwelled this mortal vessel with your sweet spirit. Oh, God, I'm so thankful to have the spirit of Christ in me. The hope of glory. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Thank you, Lord, for this precious gift that dwells in earthen vessels. I thank you for your church that you purchased with your own blood and you put your name on us. It's a privilege to be your child. I honor you, God. I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. If you're thankful for the greatest revelation that man has ever known, would you just thank him for it tonight? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Come on, it's, it's worth more than a hand clap. It's worth more than a hand clap from your heart right now. Lord, I could be lost and undone. I could be confused, Lord. But you have spoken to me through your word and the power of revelation. I'm glad I know who you are. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.